Hello, this is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Dennis McKenna, an ethnopharmacologist, research pharmacognitist, lecturer, and author. He's also the founder of the McKenna Academy and a board member at the Hefter Research Institute. We talked about psychedelics and consciousness. So let's hear what Dennis McKenna had to say about human consciousness, including psychedelics' role in its evolution. Dr. McKenna, thank you so much for, for being here, you know, here on, this, on the uh, Consciousness Podcast. I really appreciate your time. Um, and obviously, you know, this is about consciousness. Normally, I wouldn't launch in with the big hard question about what is consciousness, but I kind of wanted to lay down a little bit of a foundation and get an understanding from you and kind of what your views and opinions and thoughts and theories are on what consciousness is in terms of does it come out of the, the brain matter? Is there a duality to it, a, a universal or cosmic consciousness? You know, if you were to discuss consciousness and describe it or even define it, what, what does it mean to you? Well, you don't start with the easy questions, do you? Yeah, no, I, I would normally not want to start there, but the other questions I have for you seem to kind of grow out of that, like my ceiling. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast. Obviously, I, I, I think there is no cut and dried answer about consciousness. I, I think that, uh, you know, I think that nobody really knows all that it is. And there, there are numerous aspects of it. I think in the, in the uh, you know, in, in the simplest instantiation, if you want to use that word, consciousness is awareness, you know, awareness of the self, awareness of uh, being, you know, and uh, not necessarily uh, tied to an ego, but some awareness of our, uh, of our selfhood, you know, uh, mm -hmm. call it attention or something like that in the simplest uh, uh, way to look at it. But then where does that come from? Does that come from the brain? Or is that something that's built into the structure of reality? Is consciousness everywhere? You know, and this is the perpetual question, is the brain an antenna is a, is a receiver of consciousness or a generator of consciousness or, you know, or, or something in between, you know, mm -hmm. and there is always the issue of duality here. Uh, you know, uh, my own personal uh, uh, sort of view that I've, I've come to having taken a lot of psychedelics and, and thinking about, about consciousness, I sometimes talk about the reality hallucination and, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, which in neuroscience, I think the I think the current buzzword is the default mode network, mm -hmm. uh, and that's that doesn't equate to consciousness, but it's a part of it. The reality hallucination is essentially, in my view, this model of the world that our brain creates that we inhabit, and it's based in part on external information that comes through us through our senses. But then they are processed through a uh, you know through associations and memories and all sorts of uh, internal uh, uh, you know uh, elements that uh, that those things might be associated with, 
and then it's kind of extruded, if you will, into this model of reality, which is which is our day-to-day conscious experience. And it's it's a model of reality, but it's not reality. Reality is unknowable, essentially, but it's a pretty good model as far as we know. It's functional and it's impoverished, you know, compared to what reality itself would be. A lot of what the brain does, this is goes back to the function of the default mode network, it damps things down. It blocks a lot of the information because we couldn't handle it. You know, it, it, it's a selective filter. And, you know, I think there's in neuroscience, I think they call this neural gating. You know, the, the information gets into your, through your senses and into your conscious awareness, but it's a highly massaged, kind of thing and it's it, it's it's less rich you know than raw experience and uh, it's less rich but it's also more practical in the sense that it furnishes us with a a model of reality that makes sense that lets us navigate you know, uh, and and at least feel. We, I mean, we know it's a delusion, but it's a practical delusion. At least feel, you know, that we're located in a space and time, and uh, you know, a, a world that's relatively predictable and solid. You know, and physics and other experiences uh, tell us that's not really what the real world looks like, anyway. Mm-hmm. Of course, that the conundrum is, well, you have to trust your instruments, and that's also part of this artificial reality that you construct. So you get into these tautologies, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I, think, I think that's what our experience of consciousness is, is this sort of uh, model of reality that that we inhabit now psychedelics and other types of altered states can temporarily disrupt all that but it doesn't abolish consciousness exactly you're still conscious in a psychedelic state i think from the pharmacology standpoint the only thing or you know the the class of drugs that uh, abolish consciousness are the anesthetics, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can take an anesthetic and you're absolutely unconscious for that period of time. It just seems to inactivate those higher brain centers that generate consciousness. Um, so, um, you know, the, the psychedelics do not, do not do that, but I think they do. I'll, I'll tell you what I think they do. I think they disrupt this neural gating. In a certain mm-hmm. respect, I, I sometimes say, you know, they bring the background forward or they at least make you aware of things in the background that we are programmed to suppress because they're not, you know, they're not useful for constructing this model most of the time. And, and they're, they're a distraction for being from our being focused on what's right in front of us, you know? And I think, I also think that, you know, this, this model of reality that we construct is, um, you know, something that we develop over time and there are different degrees. I think, for example, you know, children or indigenous people are potentially open to, uh, 
a lot more messages from the background that we are we've learned you know as western literate scientifically oriented adults we've learned to filter those things out and i but that doesn't mean they're not there and they're not real and i think that's one of the areas that psychedelics can be very helpful because they make you uh, aware that there is this whole other realm of experience that normally is filtered out I think it's very useful to disable those filters because it gives you a perspective on sort of expanded consciousness, I guess you could call it, you know, Mm -hmm. realm of experience. And then also from the therapeutic point of view, I think it's this ability that uh, psychedelics have to let you step out of your reference frame, out of your box, literally temporarily. And if you're, dealing with some issue like trauma or addiction or many of the depression, many of the things that psychedelics are used to, to treat, I think this is how it enables you to do it. It lets you step back from that and look at it from a different perspective, almost as though you're examining your existential uh, situation as like a dispassionate observer, you mm. know, and you can have insights about your situation and then you can say, well, you know, that's what's wrong. Sort of understand these feedback loops that we get into, these habits that are not helpful, you know, and they tend to reinforce each other. I, I often compare this process of disrupting the, the default mode network. It's kind of like rebooting your computer, you know, we, mm-hmm. you know computer needs certain things to function but you know errors accumulate uh, if you go a long time without rebooting it you get a lot of cludge built up and so the operating system slows down it doesn't work as well mm-hmm. and rebooting it often resets a lot of things i think that's more or less almost that's very close to what psychedelics do they provide you a big serotonergic reset and then the system is very resilient and it tends to tend, you're disrupting the equilibrium, but the equilibrium, you know, will fall back together. It will, it will reconstitute, reintegrate, but it works better after that. It's almost as though you've cleaned out a lot of the cobwebs and temporarily, you know, you can think more clearly and uh, you have a left, you know, I guess you get, the point that I'm saying, you have a yeah a more uh, you know your apprehension of the world and your place in in it is uh, more functional and, and more reflective of how it actually is. Because you're building these models, and it's interesting what you we said in the beginning is consciousness is you know reality is created by our consciousness by our experience, by what we're perceiving. Right. It's the reality hallucination. Yeah. The reality hallucination that the brain is creating that when you're on hallucinogens is you've almost shifted that reality and you're almost creating, creating a a different reality, that non-ordinary state of consciousness, the non-ordinary reality. But then when you, when you come out of it, you've cleaned up all the kludge, you know, so to speak, and now you've got kind of a, a cleaned up reality to observe and perceive. Right. 
Exactly. And, and what's important to remember is, you know, we're on drugs all the time. We are made out of drugs, right? I mean, that's yeah. why drugs work. And so, you know, our consciousness, whether we're on drugs or, or not, whether it's an external drug we've taken, but our consciousness and what we experience has got to be on some level, a reflection of our neurochemical, you know, gestalt brain state at any one moment. And we can modulate that in different ways. We can go to sleep, we can take anesthetics, we can take, you know, hallucinogens, we can modulate this uh, kind of baseline, um, uh, state that we're in. So that's, you know, and, and we can alter consciousness in various ways and we're not mm -hmm. abolishing consciousness, you know, unlike anesthetics, which right. shut, shuts the whole thing down temporarily, but these other things open up, uh, you know, place, uh, realms of conscious experience that we are normally closed to us unless we take, you know, these substances or we can approach it through meditation and, and various practices yeah. basically induce what, what they call altered states, whatever those are, but wherever you are at all times, I guess, uh, as long as you're alive, what you're experiencing is, uh, a reflection of your neurochemical brain state, which is always fluctuating, you know, and uh, that's yeah, whatever that's chemicals are there naturally, whichever are introduced is creating that that reality hallucination for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With without any external chemicals, uh, you know, it's just it's just how you are. But uh, uh, you know, again, you have to be, I think, careful about the terminology that we use. You know, talk about what's inside, what's outside. You know, we're biochemical systems. We're we're engines made out of neurotransmitters and hormones and these various, you know, these different signal transduction processes that, you know, we're we or any organism. Uh, we're not things, you know, we're processes. And we're, that's, you know, I think that's what you could say, that's what consciousness is. Consciousness is the inner experience that we can apprehend for, of what it is to be a metabolizing organism. It's a reflection of metabolism, you know, and when metabolism, mm -hmm ceases the it's not very interesting anymore the reason is you're dead right, right. <laughs> yeah and, and it it's sort of like that I, I think i think that's what it's like now you know you can get into the wider metaphysical questions of uh you know is there some connection to the cosmos is there you know through quantum entanglements or other mechanisms is there you know, can there be such a thing as cosmic consciousness or, you know, the, the, the typical uh, psychedelic uh, revelation, which, which is always profound when you experience it, but sounds trivial when you say it, which is, you know, we are all one. There is no separation. Mm -hmm. We have these experiences subjectively on psychedelics and they're normally closed to us because they don't fit into this 
you know, the program of the default mode network, which is to keep your attention focused because, you know, the saber-toothed tiger is coming after you or the, the, the car on the freeway is coming after you. You need to focus on what's happening for survival. That's why modulating or, or you know, being smart about your set and setting when you do psychedelics is so important because you're making an, a, a conscious decision to lower those gating mechanisms to temporarily mm-hmm. disrupt the, this thing that keeps you safe and focused so that you can, uh, you know, experience these expanded states and you don't have to worry about, you know, your safety. Somebody, mm-hmm. you know, do it in a, in a situation where you deliberately allow that to happen. And, and uh, so, so that's what I think. Yeah. So when you're when you're in that state, in that reality hallucination, and then you take hallucinogens, you've got some examples, you know, and I don't want to judge any of them, but maybe on one end you have cannabis or a light dose of, you know, maybe a psilocybin mushrooms. And then on the far end, you've got maybe a DMT type of experience. Mm-hmm. And there is some kind of a shift in consciousness. And you know, maybe call it a non-ordinary state or heightened consciousness or whatever it is. Like you said, you feel one with everything. And then you're in the right set and setting. You feel one with everything. You feel something, or maybe you see entities, you know, whatever it is. Uh-huh. And then you come out of it and you're back to the, your, the default consciousness. Right. Is there anything that can cross over from one to the other? So when I'm, when I'm feeling like, Oh, we're all one, we're all connected love is all that matters and then come down out of that experience into the default world. And suddenly you're thinking, okay, now I'm back here with all my everyday problems. Is there some kind of a connection between those two states of consciousness that can carry over from one to the other? Well, yeah, I think, I think what it, what it gives you is perspective. You know, it gives you a perspective because you've had, you have this experience. So you know what it is mm-hmm. like to step out of your reference frame and you don't forget when you're back, you know, when you're down at, back to your baseline, you remember what it was like and that can be useful. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can always reflect back on that. You don't have to necessarily take a psychedelic you know you can you can through memory you can relive that of course you have it's probably a good idea if you do go to the well once in a while and drink but we know that uh, you know uh, we know that psychedelic experiences can have profound uh, influences long after you've taken it sometimes decades and sometimes people you know, uh, you don't necessarily have to keep taking a psychedelic. This is what we're finding in the therapeutic use. You know, the, the, uh, these are uh, therapeutically, these are drugs that you take maybe once or twice or a few times in your, in your life. If, especially if you're taking them for specific, you know, uh, treatment of some, something like PTSD or mm-hmm. addiction. It's not, it, it's the exact opposite of the usual model in psychopharmacology, which is, you know, take these for the rest of your life. And those drugs, basically they don't work. You know, they, they're they Band-Aids. They don't let you get to the 
uh, root of the problem. They just paper it over generally. Mm. And so they're not really effective. And if you go off them, then you're right back where you were before. So in that sense, I think psychedelics do represent a new, a new therapeutic modality where you can, it's kind of like a controlled process of, of going crazy, really. I mean, there are mm. similarities between these altered states and psychosis and in an older generation of older, you know, model of looking at it, they thought, you know, these were called psychotomimetics. They mimic psychosis. Well, not really, you know, but they, there are certain aspects of psychosis that are similar. There are also aspects of mystical experiences, transcendent experiences that are similar. So they used to be called mysticomimetics as well. Hmm. One of the things that tells you, uh, you know, how difficult it is to put a finger on exactly what they do is the difficulty of language, you know, and that's, it's very hard to English these things or describe them in language, which is one reason why uh, I like the word psychedelics, because it's, even though it's got that, all that baggage from the 60s, I also think it's the most accurate because it's deliberately vague. Hmm. You know, it means mind manifesting. Well, whatever it does, it manifests the mind, not right. necessarily in the way you thought it was going to. Right. You know, but it's going to manifest the mind. And so it's a, it's a useful descriptor, I think, for what these do. It all is so important, um, so importantly related to set and setting. And literally anything can happen on these things. And it depends on, uh, at least internally, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and maybe externally as well, but that's, you're in the realm of magic and shamanism. And, uh, uh, you know, but, but it, it, uh, you know, the, the, the key variables in set, setting is obviously setting has got to be appropriate, has got to be a safe vessel for these experiences to unfold. And then the set is more than just see people sometimes say, well, it's your intention. What do you want out of the experience? I say it goes far beyond that. It Basically, the set is whatever you bring to the table. Mm-hmm through your whole span of life experiences, what you are, what you know, even what you think you know, uh, that's the set, you know? So the set is by far the most complex variable of this multivariate situation. The other two besides set and setting being what is the medicine and what is the dose, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um and so we're talking about, we've heard stories of people, like you said, it could be one dose. It could be a, a prescription of doses like that with PTSD and MAPS, you know, working with three doses and 12, you know, therapy sessions, see great results. People have taken one dose of LSD and not had another drink. Um, yeah. And this is human beings having these amazing experiences with these plants and fungi. But what what role do you think that these plants and fungi had in the evolution of, of human consciousness. And I know, you know, 
there's the theories and the understandings of the the role like almost like the the monolith you mentioned i think in one of your presentations from 2001 space odyssey right right <laughs> you know is is did it have that kind of a role or a similar role into our own evolution um our minds in our consciousness yes i i believe it did uh and i think that uh uh you know, I mean, the monolith is maybe a good example of something that is completely disruptive, you know, to those primates out on the Serengeti plane, just kind of doing their thing, you know, beating each other up and whatever they yeah. do, you know, you wake up the next morning and you're like, whoa, <laughs> what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. Know? And and that's that's a complete disruptor of your of your reality frame. And in that sense, I think that is what the psychedelics are. And uh, I think that uh, you know I, I think that the back to the stoned ape theory and the stoned ape theory has been you know ridiculed and dismissed. But I actually think there's better evidence now to support that idea than there was in 1993 when Terence wrote The Food of the Gods and proposed this idea. Hmm. And, and the two things that uh, uh, I think make it, uh, make it more plausible, well, maybe three things, but two, two important things that we didn't really understand back in the day. And one of them is neuroplasticity and the other is epigenetics. And hmm. neuroplasticity, we now know that psychedelics can actually stimulate neurogenesis, uh, reorganize your neural architecture, have you know, long-term effects on the way that the brain is structured and the way it's functioning, you know, change the connectivity patterns, do all of these things, which last far beyond the experience itself, which is one reason why these things therapeutically, you know, for treatment, you can, you can screen people six months later, a year later, two years later, whatever, and you get, they still are experiencing those, those benefits, they're experiencing those long term effects. And I think that reflects a, a, neuroplastic response you know we now know back in 19 in the early 90s we thought pretty much the brain is what it is at birth and you have a certain complement of neurons at birth and uh you know that's what you have that's only downhill from there well that we know that doesn't work anymore that we mm can have neurogenesis and in fact psychedelics can stimulate that and change the connectivity patterns so you've got that and then the other aspect of it is the epigenetics these these mechanisms can actually be inherited and passed from generation to generation it's not a darwin it's not a darwinian it's not a uh uh, it doesn't come through the somatic from the from the germ cells. It's it's uh, it's a different kind of inheritance. But these epigenetic changes can take place and they can persist. So knowing that, and then knowing what we know about the probable uh, environment in which hominids 
uh, you know, evolved uh, in Africa from about two million years up to the present. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, you know the, these uh, areas where they were, where the fossil evidence shows that they were, uh, they were much wetter than they are now. There was, uh, you know, there was usually a rainy season. Sometimes they were, you know, there the much higher levels of rainfall. We know that there were cattle in that area, or the precursors of the Cebu cow, which happens to be the you know, the, the dung of the Cebu cow is one of the prefer, preferred substrates for Psilocybe cubensis. You can find hmm. it to this day pretty much anywhere in the tropics where you've got rainfall and cows and pastures, you'll find this mushroom. You know, it's, it's pan-global. Hmm. There's fossil evidence that the, the cows were there, you know, at the same time, and the hominids were there, and almost certainly... If you have those two things, then the mushrooms had to be there. Yeah, and the 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 uh, you know the hominids growing up in this area are uh, you know they're looking for food. They're hungry, and uh, they would not be overlooked, especially something like Psilocybe cubensis, which in the tropics it can be a quite robust mushroom. You can't not see it. Right, and once you see it. You're going to consume it because it looks succulent and delicious. And as a matter of fact, it is, you know, it doesn't yeah. taste like that. And then you have the, the revelation, you know, and, and I think that, uh, you know, Terence in Food of the God said that it, 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 it stimulates at low doses, it stimulates visual acuity, which is true that there's evidence that it does do that. So helpfully it's, it's helpful in hunting and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And media to high doses, it stimulates uh, social bonding, uh, sexual activity and uh, at much higher doses. It has this you know, transcendent, you know, it opens the portals to this other world uh, of entities and experience and, and, you know, so it's a dose-related thing, but that's a that's a real reality for people that are that are consuming this in in their social group, and uh, I've I've sort of uh, you know, built on this idea or extended this idea that to the uh, to the notion that uh, it facilitates synesthesia, right? The agents. Mm -hmm very often facilitates synesthesia and synesthesia is the basis of language. So in my opinion, you, you know, synesthesia to, to be able to speak, you're uttering a sound, which inherently is meaningless, except that it can be associated with a symbol or uh, an internal visualization of something we do this without even thinking about it because it's so ingrained to the way our brains work. But, you know, uh, 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 to utter a, a meaningful uh, uh, phrase or word or whatever usually elicits an internal visual representation. I think that's what mushrooms taught us. They taught us to form abstractions. They, they helped us construct essentially this reality hallucination that that 
is the characteristic of consciousness. They, they gave us the tools to uh, develop cognition and uh, to, to make that critical connection between something heard and something seen and something meaningful. And that's what language is essentially. And once you get language going, then you know all bets are off because language is the uh, you know language is the whether written or spoken. It's the medium by which we share and transmit information across yeah. time and space, across geographical you know regions, and also transmit it through time. Um, and that that's it. And that's that's not such a crazy notion, I don't think. No, it doesn't sound like it. I mean, that, that makes a, a lot of logical sense there. And you can see there's two, there's two lines there. There's individual and then there's, I guess, species. I don't know if that's the right word or not. But you can see the species as a group doing this and it propagates through the generations, carries mm-hmm. language with it. There's so much there that would expand our consciousness. But going back to what you said, it was pretty powerful for me. So I don't want to drag us too far backwards, but the neuroplasticity it's kind of like we were talking about in the beginning that, you know, we're shifting reality. Um, you're getting the kludge out of your default mode network and you're cleaning up your brain. Right. We're actually repairing or rebuilding or restructuring some of the neural networks inside of the brain. And yeah. then I can pass that on to my kids. That's right. Through epigenetics. You yeah. Can, in fact, pass it on onto your kids. So that's the key thing. Not only do these things alter consciousness in the moment, in your experience, but the way they alternate is reflective of changes that are going on at the neural level. You know, and this is not wild speculation. This is now, it's pretty well demonstrated that they can do this. Yeah, that's powerful. And then, then you take it, spread it across a tribe, a species, a land, or whatever, and you can see how that would definitely, yeah, this uh, this theory definitely seems like it's got a, a real good, strong basis to it, and yeah. it does seem like the latest um, insights support it's, it. It's much more. It's much more compelling, I think. Yeah. It it uh, you know invokes the mechanisms that that could make make this happen. So I. Um, yeah, I, I think it explains a lot, and uh, um, because something happened. I mean, we are such an anomaly compared to any other species mm-hmm. on the planet. And basically, what sets us apart more than anything else? I, I submit that it's language. You know, and animals have, you know, languages. They have their but they're not like human language and, and our, our human language, you know, they can transmit signals to the, each other and that sort of thing. Maybe some of them do, but I have complex languages, but I think it's human, it's human language that can deal with abstractions and abstractions are like an internal uh, representation uh, of an idea or an image or a symbol, but the symbol is freighted with meaning. And, uh, you know, you, you can have an abstract, you can visualize something ex- internal and, 
and you know, then we're blessed or cursed, depending on how you want to look at it, with these opposable thumbs and restless mm. hands, and we can say, "Hey, I can not only visualize this thing; I can build this thing." And that's what we do, and and so much of you know, uh, civilization of, of everything, of human artifact. I mean, you know, we live in a world of uh, that is basically the, the, the physical manifestation of a bunch of something that started out as ideas, as abstractions. And, you know, we externalize those into the world and we build, you know, we make a better spear, we make a better rock, we make a better computer starship, you know. It, it, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And in, in, in the in the study of, of consciousness, you know, we talk a lot about phenomenal experiences, qualia, you know, something it's like to, to feel something. So I it's not only communicating the these thoughts and these ideas and knowledge and information, but I can also kind of make another human feel something by saying something like black widow or a rattlesnake or uh -huh. apple pie, you know, right. or hot. And yeah. so we took those, that information and just through the years of experiencing and feeling and growing that, that whole synesthesia of, of words to thoughts to feelings kind of went up that, that whole next level in consciousness. That's right. That's right. And to just enunciate that term, you essentially re-experience it, what it's all about. You know, you see the piece of pie, you smell it, you taste it, you create this little uh, imaginary episode in your head about what it's like to interact with that thing, the piece mm -hmm. of apple pie or the scorpion or, or whatever, you know. And of course, those other things can elicit all, all the fears, but... Uh, you know, there's a reason for that because these things can be quite dangerous. So that's your yeah. self-preservation mechanisms, you know, your yeah, survival fight or flight reaction. Yeah. Kicking yeah. In. But, uh, you know, you can imagine these things and uh, you get, you know, you get just as much of an effect, you get all the fear and then hopefully you wake up and realize, oh, it's just a dream, you know, or just something imagined. Yeah. But, but, you know, by, by this model, everything you experience is imagination. You know, it's part of this model of reality that we inhabit. We're the producers, directors, and stars of our own movie. Yeah, we sure are. We sure are. Um, now, you've got this uh, project going, the McKenna Academy. Yes. And in, in looking at that, one of the things I, I saw, I feel like I saw uh, recurring on there, was you talking about, I think, essentially um, humanity, the, all of us being at the, quote, the doorstep of global transformation in human consciousness. Uh -huh. it, it, and what, what do you mean by that? Well, I think that, uh, I think that uh, as a species, existentially, I think our problem is, you know, as we look at the challenges that we're facing on the planetary scale, mm. You know, I think a lot of it is traceable to the fact that we've lost our connection with nature. We're out of sync with nature. And our historical experiences, particularly in the West, has led us to devalue nature, to view it as 
something that we own, something that is not full of intelligence, something mm -hmm. that's there for us to dominate and use and ultimately decimate and destroy. And we're, we're well along in, in that process. And I think one of the things, again, the psychedelics do, they can, by refocusing our attention on our relationship to nature, they can, they can make us aware that, you know, this is our biggest existential problem. We have to wake up. We have to wake up to how badly uh, we've gotten out of sync with nature. And then we have to, to, rise to that challenge we have to, i sometimes say in my talks we have to wake up but then we have to wise up and mm. that's the harder part we have to get wise about the decisions we make and uh what we do going forward but but that can be informed by this wake up process by this revelation and i think until there is a widespread transformation in the collective consciousness we're pretty much doomed you know and, and we may be doomed anyway but it's not too late so i think the psychedelics can be catalysts in helping people wake up so many people uh come away from their psychedelic experiences especially with something like ayahuasca or mushrooms and especially in nature they come away with a a sort of enhanced mm. appreciation for our relationship to nature and, and really how marvelous nature is. And, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 I, I think the term is one, one of the terms is biophilia, you know, a, a sort of in, innate love for life, mm -hmm. living things and psychedelics elicit that. So again, they're doing what they've always done. They've always been these cognitive tools that have worked for us in evolution. And, uh, you know, they were important in, in essentially, I think, as catalysts that allowed consciousness to emerge. But they still have uh, much to teach us, you know, and we still have much to learn, I think. I mean, that's one reason, you know, I think, I think a psilocybin experience of high dose is uh, uh, as astonishing to us as it was to our hominid ancestors, you know, hmm. a million years ago. I mean, it just completely disrupts our, what we think we know. And, and that's, that's gotta be a healthy thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's it's interesting. Mushrooms clean up the forest and can clean up an or, uh, oil spill. Yeah. And now it's, now it sounds like you're saying they're they're also really trying to do their best to 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 clean up to uh, our our environment around yeah, us. In a sense, in, in a literal sense, you know, I, I do think I do think that's that's what they're doing. You know, there and this is this is totally in line with with, uh, you know, the way we know that they work. I gave a talk recently called psilocybin in its place in nature. And uh, I, uh, I was discussing, uh, as an example, I was talking about these different uh, cordyceps species, which you're probably mm -hmm. familiar with. I think they're, I think they're called ophiocordyceps. Now they've changed the name, but these, mm -hmm. these fungi that invade insects, 
you know, and mm-hmm. take over their behavior. They actually invade their nervous system and help and direct them to behave in a certain way. They turn them into zombies, essentially, and yeah. direct them to behave to optimize uh, spore distribution for the fungus. Well, psilocybin, you know, mushrooms do not invade your brain, at least we hope not, but it you could look at psilocybin as a kind of neuroeco hormone. It's a hormone that the fungus produces to initiate symbiosis, you know, and it it has, uh, you know, we know that it's important in terms of interaction with psilocybin mushrooms with insects. There's a whole thing going on. They either attract insects or they repel them, but there's, it's all related to spore dispersal. But then, you know, 75 million years after psilocybin made the scene, along come these big brain primates or these primates with, if not large brains, at least complex. And, uh, you know, psilocybin was maybe repurposed to that. And uh, in some ways, maybe, you know, uh, maybe psilocybin is directing human behavior in that in that respect because, you know, it we get something out of the mushroom. We get the pleasure of taking psilocybin, which we find very interesting and usually pleasurable, always interesting. You know, and and the mushroom gets from that. It gets propagated. It gets spread around, and and so that's. That's the essence of a symbiosis. He, he, it gives us something, and we give something back, which is we facilitate its, you know, conquest of, of the world and its yeah. population. You know, Terence had a famous saying once. He said, uh, "We're involved in a symbiotic relationship with something that has disguised itself as an alien invasion in order not to alarm us." <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> Because I almost asked you about that in the beginning. It's a terrestrial invasion. Yeah. What it is. Yeah. And it's uh, the way, the way that uh, you frame that in the way that it's almost like a reality hallucination of mankind of, of planet earth almost being directed by these fungi. Yes. I think you could think, make that case, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, Michael Pollan, who's famous now for his book on psychedelics, but before mm-hmm. that he wrote about food and he wrote about, you know, the human relationship with uh, major food crops and and made the point that, you know, uh, I mean, in his book, have you read any of his stuff besides the, the how to change? No, no, just how to change your mind. And I went to his book signing when he came through town, but no, I have not read his other books. Well, his other books are amazing. And especially the omnivorous dilemma or the botany of desire. That's what he was writing about before. Mm-hmm. But he makes the point, for example, about corn, that corn is the quintessential capitalist plant. You know, it adopts itself to a petroleum-based uh, uh, monocultural global type of agricultural production system. And he makes the point that, you know, well, we think we're growing corn, 
Hmm. Actually, corn is using us to carry out its program for world domination. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I highly recommend those. Yeah, books. I will have to read those because I was obviously entranced by How to Change Your Mind. So I yeah. instantly became a Michael Pollan fan when I really didn't know much about him. So I'm going to have to go pick those up for oh, sure. Yeah. His, his other work is really very interesting. Uh, those two, those are the two main ones. I, I, I can't recommend them enough. Okay. In some ways, I was. I, I'm glad that Michael wrote those. The how to change your mind. I'm disappointed in it in some ways. Oh, are you how? Well, I think that. Uh, I think. Uh, I think as far as it goes, I think it was written for people that are not really familiar with psychedelics, which right. is, which is kind of good because it's it's a way to educate people about about psychedelics uh uh but no i i guess that i guess that's basically you know i i guess that's basically my beef with it he's he's a very good writer you know and and he's very well known so he served the purpose by writing the book of making people aware of it i was disappointed that he uh uh that he focused so much on uh uh, on psilocybin and said almost nothing about ayahuasca, which of course I've, you know, I've been involved in ayahuasca perhaps more than mushroom, at least professionally. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an oversight because I think ayahuasca in terms of its social context and the, the, the impact it's have on changing minds and, and getting out there to the people. If these things are like ambassadors from the guy in mind, one way to think of them, I think ayahuasca is having maybe more impact on people than mushrooms, mm -hmm. but that may be changing too, because now the focus seems to be shifting back to mushrooms. And both of these, these two things are very important, uh, evolutionary catalysts basically yeah yeah that makes sense a, a friend of mine who is from Colombia had a, a similar observation uh, about his book and i know some others have mentioned the lack of and i don't think this is his fault the lack of of uh paragraphs on microdosing. and he mentioned right. that when he talked and he said well just not there wasn't that there's no studies really yet to cover about that. So I just chose to leave it out. And there's so many people curious about microdosing and what to do and how to do it, that it was, I think some people that are maybe a little have dived deeper into psychedelics were maybe a little disappointed not to have at least uh, some mention of that. Yeah, he should have mentioned it. And, uh, but of course there's lots of other inf sources of information. Yeah. And, uh, as far as it's not talking about ayahuasca, I think in part, because he didn't really have a good experience. I think he took it once or twice in like, you know, basements hmm. in Brooklyn or something and not, didn't really yeah. go to the trouble of going to South America and having the experience, you know, yeah. on the other hand, I've come to uh, wonder, you know, uh, even though I've organized ayahuasca retreats and continue to be very involved in that, I'm beginning to wonder if that's really, I think it's tremendous medicine, but I, I think we're putting a lot of pressure on it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so maybe ayahuasca tourism as, you know, should be discouraged 
I don't think you can put an end to it, but I think it should be maybe much less common than it was. I mean, I don't know if you've been to South America or I have not. I mean, I actually, I have been to South America, but not for that purpose, ironically. Yeah. Well, around Iquitos, you know, which is kind mm-hmm. of the epicenter, there's like 200 ayahuasca retreat centers. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of pressure on, on the, the two ingredients. You can't grow fast enough, not to mention all of it that's being exported and so on. So fortunately, COVID has kind of shut that down, uh, you know, uh, and, and again, maybe this is part of the message that uh that the that the you know the scent the the biosphere the gaia if you want to use that term pachamama is giving us yeah pachamama maybe that's part of the message to slow down and and not put so much pressure on these ecosystems and these plants and give them a chance to recover yeah. you know what i would like to see i like the decrim movements that are happening as, as uneven as they are, but I'd like to look 10 years ahead when all of these plants are totally unregulated. There's no legal prohibition of them. Yeah. And that creates an opportunity for local uh, psychotherapists, you know, psychedelic therapy centers, wellness centers to crop up in North America and Canada and Europe where they can o- operate completely in the open you know, and then yes. turn around and, and form alliances with indigenous people, not to bring people down there, you know, and disrupt their culture, even though it's got economic benefits for them, but disrupt their culture, but work with them to say, okay, you know, we'll leave you alone. You produce these medicines and export them to these localized centers and maybe, you know, bring the the medicines to the people rather than the people to the medicines. And that, yeah. that might turn out to be a beneficial uh, situation for everybody involved. Yeah, I agree. This, I agree. This 100%. Is a 20 to 30 to year, you know, scenario here. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. a good point. That, that kind of thinking I think could benefit the decree movement. Yeah. Yeah. Because if anyone was ever, uh, you know, uh, qualified to kind of, uh, I mean, again, indigenous people have been the stewards of this knowledge and this genetics for however long it's been. So obviously they're the ones that should, uh, uh, you know, uh, which they already had, you know, they're, they're the ones that we should entrust the, the, uh, this sacred knowledge to. Right. you know, the, the sacred plants and, uh, uh, you know, and then on the other hand, you've got the whole scientific thrust, you know, to turn something like psilocybin into a clinical medicine, you know, and in some ways I, I have to, I have to say that's good. It's good that it's coming into its own. I think potentially it can change psychiatry and mental health care in good ways because those you know mental health care sucks basically the mm-hmm. approach to it is is ridiculous so it can change it what i would not like to see though is some kind of you know regulatory disjunct where you can you know 
if you have $30,000, you can go to a clinic and get a psilocybin therapy. But if you want to go into the woods and, and pick mushrooms, you can get arrested. I mean, that's, right. that's just wrong. You know, yeah. people should have access to these medicines, whether they choose to use them, you know, individually or in, in ceremonial situations or whatever. But I'm lately I've been saying, you know, we have a right to symbiosis. Humans have a right to symbiosis. And it should be asserted that way, you know, that uh, not, not just as a human right, because we're talking about non-humans too. So like, you know, it, it's an organismic right to form symbioses, um, mutually beneficial alliances. And yeah. And, and from the consciousness angle, I hear the same, the same argument that uh, the one has the right to explore and expand his or her own consciousness. Exactly, exactly. And that's the thing. The the uh, you know the war on drugs has been, uh, you know, basically a war on people. You know, you can't make war on drugs, but you could certainly make war on the people that use them. And there's been a lot of that. And also, though, it's a war on consciousness in a certain mm. sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, sure is. I never, that's something I never really considered before. Excuse me? It's something I actually hadn't considered. It's a war on consciousness. Yes, it really is. Graham Hancock talks about this and uh, very articulately. But it, but really, that that is what it is. And, and it certainly is older than the war on drugs that we think about it, you know, I mean, the inquisition and the suppression of uh, indigenous peoples, you know, had a lot to do with the suppression of their, their religion and their religion was usually based on psychedelics. So that's yeah. why, you know, I mean, that the inquisition came along. That's why the, the, the Spaniards, the colonialists so brutally, suppressed the use of mushrooms in Mexico when they came across it mm. because, you know, they, they, you know, the, the mushroom is called Teanonacatl, you know, uh, flesh of the gods. Mm. Well, the church father said, no, you can't do that. That's our, right. you know, we're the only ones that get to give you the body of Christ or the, the body of God. So yeah, yeah. It was very brutally, um, you know, attempted to be suppressed. And of course it didn't work. And now we're looking at the, at the, uh, you know, the other side of it, you know, it went underground for 500 years and now it's back, especially as we understand now the, you know, what truly twisted and hollow, uh, uh, institutions, things like the Catholic Church have become, you know, I mean, they have absolutely, in my opinion, no claim to any moral authority. Hmm. You know, uh, clearly, I mean, besides their suppression and, and essentially fostering genocide of indigenous people, there's very good reason to think that you know, because of the Christian uh, attitudes toward indigenous people when the colonialists came around, you know, there's good, there's a very good uh, book, uh, kind of an older one, but worth reading called uh, American Holocaust. And it's all about the, 
the genocide and decimation of indigenous people. Up to 800 million people were slaughtered or lost either to disease or war mm, or mm-hmm. back in the day. So this is the biggest Holocaust. And, uh, you know, and then you look contemporaneously at the Catholic Church, uh, you know, and its uh, its reaction to all the the abuse of of people, uh, sexual abuse, and so on. So they have no moral authority at all, in my opinion. Of course, I'm quite biased because I'm a recovering Catholic. And, right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I got no use for the Catholic Church. And yeah, I, I hear you. You I know. Hear ya. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Um, so regarding uh, consciousness, before we get to the last wrap-up question here, but regarding consciousness, what, what have I not asked you? Is there anything else that you wanted to kind of get out there and, and talk about, you know, regarding plants and fungi and consciousness? Well, I, I think we pretty well covered it. I, I just think that... Uh, Uh, you know, in, in a general sense, you know, uh, I think we are immersed in this network of symbiotic relationship. These are valuable allies, you know, and and you can think of them as allies. You can externalize them and talk about entities and all that. Mm-hmm. What I think they really are is tools for helping us discover what we already know, you know, but we don't know that we know. So Mm. a way to uncover this information and present it to us in a way that we can understand it. And that often appears to be coming from outside. But then if you go back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier about how the reality hallucination, it's, it's all a reflection of our neurochemical brain states, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so there is that. I think these. I think we have to be grateful for these tools. They they are what we need to evolve. They they serve us in the same way now that they've always served us, you know. And I think they are evolutionary and cognitive. They're co-evolutionary partners, and they're cognitive. Uh, stimulants. They they teach us how to think, and I would I would guess in I would guess in uh, you know in closing uh, I would I would get I would you know I would mention the McKenna Academy because the McKenna Academy was my concept was to make it a psychedelic university, the first psychedelic university since Eleusis, essentially, hmm. in which you know not all the faculty members are human. Right. And, yeah. And it's a place for learning and and integrating and exploring these ideas. And I think, you know, if it has, uh, you know, if it has two main components to its mission, one of them is to help people not tell people what to think, help people learn how to think. Mm. You know, that's one thing, because any number of institutions, especially religions, but many other dogma-driven type systems, they're only too happy to tell you what to think. Yeah. The McKenna Academy is not about that. It's about helping people achieve their own consciousness and learn how to think for themselves, because that's what we need. And then, and then the other side of that is to remind people 
don't forget to be astonished, you know, don't forget to experience wonder, you know, mm. if, if you're, if you look at the world, if you look at nature, if you look at our existential situation and you're, and you're not amazed and in awe, you're missing the point somehow, you know, you're not paying attention because no matter what happens, you know, we're, we, the cosmos is, is incredible. And the cosmos yeah. I, I do think is permeated with intelligence and consciousness, you know, yeah, not necessarily that there are that many other alien races there may be although it's reason to think that there's also they're possibly very rare but just built into the structure of reality is incredible intelligence you know if, if you look at it and, and yeah and so i guess that's what the mckenna academy is supposed to be an educational nexus where people can you know put it broadly come to have your mind blown yeah <laughs> whether you blow it with psychedelics or just with ideas and conversation and blow your mind, expand your mind, and then epigenetically pass it on. That's exactly it. Yep. Well, that is fantastic. I, I definitely want to be involved with that one way or another. So I'm going to definitely keep an eye on you and what you're doing with the McKenna Academy. And for anybody listening in the text, I'll have links to the McKenna Academy and also the uh, Hefter Research Institute uh, yeah. where Dr. McKenna's on the board also. Yep. Yep. And so we'll have all that information and, uh, Dr. McKenna, I can't thank you enough. That was really amazing, great information. And I'm just truly grateful for you to spend your time sharing that with me and, and our, our listeners. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Yeah. It was, a, it was a pretty good one. We were on a roll there. So. <laughs> good. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. All right. Thank you. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the Consciousness Podcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.